Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 164. In this episode, we're talking about My Body is Not a Prayer Request with Dr. Amy Kenny. Dr. Amy Kenny is a disabled scholar, Shakespeare lecturer, and the author of My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church, published by Brazos. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Kate Judd, Dr. Madison Pierce, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Kenny and the way that she reframed a lot of these issues for us within this, this conversation about disability in the church and disability justice within the church. What were some of the takeaways that you all had from our conversation with Dr. Kenny? I was was very uh, impressed by and, and will walk away with this idea that there is an, instinct, an instinctive uh, reaction uh, to right all wrongs. And to uh, to uh, to straighten all jagged edges and um, to correct all inefficiencies, whether when we just look out at creation or in the church. And uh, I think Dr. Kenny's remarks have really made me reflect on uh, appreciating um, and embracing the the things that we tend to see as off or uh, not fully functioning, and uh, what that might mean for a church to to be thankful for that, to embrace that, and to see uh, to see how we fit into uh, a larger pattern of relationships. And um, she's given me a lot to think about. Just for some uh, context, uh, Amy and I uh, we have some history together. She and her husband Andrew were. A part of uh, a homeless ministry out in Orange, California, um, the ministry at Hart Park. Amy uh, and Andrew were uh, core members of that ministry, really uh, constantly showing up uh, every month, sometimes multiple times a month for more than 10 years. Uh, it, it gives a lot of uh, color to what makes Amy tick, uh, her ministry to folks out in the margins. Um, and I think uh, it it gives us a little bit more color on um, just just her overall uh, philosophy of life and and her ministry. Yeah, I think Chris, I share that um, that take that take home in the sense that you know reframing um, people with disability as not just objects of pity and compassion. I mean, they may, they may sometimes. There's diversity. Sometimes that might be the case. It might be the appropriate response. But just not presuming that and always expecting um, that there are gifts to be contributed by every member in the body of Christ. And one of the primary gifts I think that is offered by people with a disability is this idea of a holy disruption. Uh, And it's often in those subverted expectations that we encounter God in ways that are really enriching and I think that that's something that I'm going to be thinking about in the, in the context of my own life and in the context of my church communities. You know one of the things I've been learning over the past couple of years is just to make sure that the relationships that I'm in that I conceive of them in a reciprocal way you know that I'm learning from my students and as much as I'm teaching them that when I'm serving you know, communities that are understood as being under-resourced that, you know, that I'm actually learning so much by being with them in those experiences. And, you know, a similar kind of, of idea was emerging for me and what Dr. Kenny was saying in terms of the beauty that comes from, it's really just being around people. And all of this is really just, the theme is, is humanizing and, and ensuring that, you know, people in under-resourced communities aren't just quote-unquote poor people. People with disabilities aren't just disabled people, um, but are people that we can love and and be with. So I I loved hearing from Dr. Kenny and really enjoy learning more from her in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I really loved uh, hearing from Dr. Kenny, her lived experience, but also 
the way that she sets out in the context of the diversity of the church, um, that she really emphasizes that this is not an either or. We can't be treating disability as a binary option, um, but rather it is placed within the community of, of the church and, and that, that within that space, there is actually place for flourishing without then uh, this constant need to straighten all the, the jagged edges and correct everything back to the norm eight. Um, so her lived experience and her, her witness is really beneficial here. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Amy Kenny. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Kenny. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're really excited to talk about your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and and what you're trying to set out in it? The book is a loving clapback and invitation to the church that I have grown up in and been a part of and want so desperately to live up to who we say we are and what we say we believe. And it's inviting people into my world and sharing my story by sharing some of the harm that has been done to me as a disabled woman in church and hopefully inviting people to a more inclusive way. I think I can anticipate what some of that harm might've looked like, but what are some of the things that you're um, guarding against? What are you trying to encourage us towards? I grew up in a home and a church that taught me that everyone was made in the image of God. And I had the audacity to believe that. And it turned out that not everyone believes that about my disabled body. And many times, dozens of times in my life, folks from church who I think are really well-meaning have approached me with pet prayers and potions to rid me of my disabled body, to get rid of what they consider to be uncomfortable or something that's broken. And that does something to you over time for people to try to pray you away, for people to unsolicited give you advice about how to not be disabled. I've heard everything from put garlic in your socks to hit your leg with a hammer somehow I'm still disabled. And it does something over time to only be able to access the church community because you go in the back entrance where only the rats greet you. And I think that the book is sharing those experiences as a way to reveal what many people just haven't even been aware of is very common for us disabled folks in church spaces. I mean, thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you articulating that. And I'm sorry, because I know we're asking you to relive and to articulate various pain that you've experienced. Um, But I'm really appreciative because um, there are, you're right, there are so many who haven't even thought about what that experience might have been like for you. So you've articulated some of the harm that's been done. And I think, I, you know, I've heard, um, I have a, f- a friend who has terminal cancer. I have long-term health issues. I've heard others articulate similar concerns, or even um, I've a, I had a student with severe mental health concerns. Each of them and, my, and I have articulated the pain that comes in this desire to kind of um, pray you healed. And then also in um, some Pentecostal circles, then there's also the kind of lack of faith kind of concern and all of that. Ah, yes. The what (laughs) sin is preventing you from walking? I've had many a time. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there are a lot of ideas that we have in our churches. Um, I have a lot of questions swirling around my head, but one that comes to mind for me is what are some of the theologies or ideologies that you think this represents. So you say that this is about, for you, is about being rooted in the image. What do these other um, ideas, what are they rooted in perhaps? I think most people are really well-meaning, but they often have misunderstood disability or misplaced 
some of what disability represents. For a lot of people, I represent the ghost of Christmas future. And just encountering me at church, at the grocery store, at the library, people are having to think through all of their thoughts on theodicy, God's will, suffering, pain, disability, creation. That's a lot when you're just in the, the pasta aisle. And I think what's happening there is that people are confronted with the truth that we are not promised that we will not be disabled. We are not promised health or illness or wellness or whatever words you want to use there. And that makes people really uncomfortable because I think on some level, many people have internalized this prosperity gospel that as long as I'm faithful, I will get and then insert whatever that is here, a life without chronic illness or pain or a life without disability. And that's actually not what we're promised. And I think even, even beyond that though, it's not just that we're not promised it, it's that sometimes folks are failing to even consider how God is already at work in disability. So many of the characters in scripture are disabled and disabled folks are at the forefront of the work that God chooses to do with humanity. And God is so powerfully at work in and through and with our disabled body minds. So to try to fix them or get rid of them is really problematic on a lot of levels. I mean, hello, eugenics. But also it's problematic because God is already present in disability. Something that I... Um, really appreciated in your book, Amy, was the way in which you kind of tried to help people in the church particularly to stop exclusively viewing people with a disability just as um, objects of pity or compassion or, um, you know, the recipients of care and start expecting encounter with God and start expecting what are the gifts and contributions that can be made. Can you talk about the ways in which you've found that shift to be done better than others in church communities? I remember one time serving communion at my church and uh, someone complained because they didn't want to receive communion from a disabled person. And I mean, I guess they missed the whole, this is my body broken for you part, but LOL. And I remember the discussions that came out of that and the way that various community members actually pushed back on that and said, well, wait, no, this is part of the body. This is part of our body. And this is part of our community and someone who's serving with us. And that complaint isn't valid. Now, they didn't ask me back to serve communion for quite some time, but I can think of examples interpersonally where community members in my churches have embraced my disability, have learned with and from my body-mind. And then when I have connected that to the resurrected Christ, to Jacob, to Moses, to Mephibosheth, to Paul, to Timothy, that that has been welcomed with encouragement and with depth. But I think all the examples I can think of are individual and not systemic and are based on a few friends in a community and not based on what church leadership has responded. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, as, as you point out, when, when communities are organized around what's most efficient or what most what's going to be most you know cost effective like those kinds of metrics being the organizing principle of a community um, that's when that's when ableism comes to the fore and could you just could you just hash out a, a shorthand definition of what you mean when you say ableism ableism is discrimination against disabled folks but it's much broader and deeper than that. It's a system that places value on people's body minds based on ideas of what we think of as normal, strong, smart, 
productive, efficient, cost-effective. So you can connect in there how ableism upholds racism, colonialism, sexism, queerphobia, how it connects to these ideas of hierarchies of humanity and how it also sells us this lie that we can be independent and that we can do everything by ourselves. And we just know that to not be true. It's just that non-disabled folks can pretend it's true for a lot longer. Thanks so much for sharing your experience with us, Amy. Um, your communion, uh, the, the story of you serving communion um, reminds me of the concerns that um, Stuart Long, who was uh, eventually, um, he had muscle progressive muscle disorder and was a Catholic priest and his formation advisors were hesitant about him being able to serve communion because he might spill the host. Um, and it strikes me that there is this idea of the the normative things that we do as church communities, and we have certain concerns about those as well. Um, and therefore, uh, disability challenges those. But at the same time, I think sometimes we go then in the other direction where uh, people are so afraid of the normative that it becomes this, um, I think you use the term uh, disabled porn or inspiration porn. <laughs> if you could talk a bit about navigating that that middle space between um an ab a, a, an ableism on one hand and then a um a disability porn i guess you'd say on the other some form of prosperity on the other hand yeah it's tricky isn't it because both are rooted in dehumanizing they're just doing it in opposite directions and inspiration porn that that time comes from Stella Young and Mason Saeed, who talk about how, as many of us disabled folks just navigating the world, people are constantly telling us we're inspirations and we haven't even done anything. So something I receive a lot is you're such an inspiration and it's just in the car park or in, <laughs> in um, the library and it's from complete strangers. Or my husband will receive, oh, wow, good for you for putting up with her disability as though the sole purpose of our vows are for me to trap him into staying with me. And those are really well-intentioned, but they are harmful because it suggests that I am an object and not a subject. It suggests that I'm an angel and not just a human. And I'm just a girl standing in front of the church asking for them to love us. And I think that even when people want to praise just the bare minimum that I'm doing, it always comes with a, a pitch. It comes with a high pitched tone that only dolphins and dogs can hear. It comes with a tilted head and often an actual pat on my head as though I am a dog. And I'm a human, my needs are not special. Uh, when you go to a restaurant, don't you want there to be a bathroom for you to use? When you go to your workplace, don't you want there to be a plan for your evacuation in case of emergency? Those aren't special needs. Those are just human needs. And both that and then the other thing I receive a lot, which is, oh, I'd kill myself if I had what you had. Both of those are harmful and they're both rooted in dehumanizing me. It strikes me that in a lot of ways, you know, that second category of kind of the inspiration porn is a lot like tokenism. Um, what we see with other uh, minoritized groups where it's sort of like, um, we enjoy that you exist, but there's always a but, especially with tokenism. So I wonder, you know, when we hear, especially, um, you know, those from minoritized racial groups, you know, there's a lot of pressure for assimilation. Um, and I can imagine that for you that something like that could be true as well. I don't know if that's a term that would resonate with you, but um, are you celebrated insofar as you're not causing trouble or asking for too much? I don't know if that question, there, there's a bigger question there, but hopefully that makes sense. Absolutely. And the, everyone loves me in a brochure, but the moment that I 
ask for my needs to be met, I'm excessive or extra or demanding or, well, you know, some pastors told me one time, well, we, we don't want to have a ramp because only you benefit from that. That's not for anyone else. We don't have other disabled folks here. You know, I wonder if that's connected to having no ramp. <laughs> There's sort of some math happening there. But I think, I think what that reveals well, there's lots of things that reveals. I'm actually not the only disabled person in a community. I might be the only one whose disability is apparent to you in that moment, but we know that disabled folks are 15% of the global population and here in the States, 26%. So if I am the only person that you know of in your community who's disabled, that's a real problem. It's, it makes me wonder how many um, parents they have in their community as well, um, because I can certainly attest that uh, pushing a pram up a ramp is a lot easier than getting a pram into um, upstairs. Right. And I mean, um, isn't that a great metaphor for how access really helps us all? And yes, there being a ramp allows for me to access a building, but it also allows for you know folks with prams and strollers for anyone with sound equipment, if you're pushing, you know, large scale speakers up a ramp, that's a lot easier than lugging it up and down stairs. And I think if we do actually start to meet the access needs of disabled folks, we will come to find that more and more people have their access needs met who just didn't know that was even an option. Yeah, and I guess it brings to mind as well the the systemic nature of uh, discrimination in in all, all its regards. Um, the the lack of a ramp in this case benefits or discriminates against a lot of people. A lot of people can benefit from a ramp. Certainly, the church that I did my curacy at uh, as as a priest, um, we had because of a fire, we had to re um, redevelop part of the site. And we had installed ramps as part of that. Uh, and yet the council, the city council actually said, no, you can't have a ramp here because it's obscuring the access to the building for able-bodied people. Um, I'm wondering that sort of very strange inversion of uh, ability and disability there. Um, it strikes me, it, it has always struck me, struck me as something that is completely bizarre. Um, but I'm wondering, do you see that also occurring in other parts of the church? I mean, physical access is one area which is very easy to see uh, because it's it's often a, a physical object which um, which we can relate to um, in in order to to reckon to remedy the the, the disability. But how? how how is that happening more in visible ways, do you think? And whereabouts was this, Chris? Uh, so this is in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, gotcha. Wonderful city council. Uh, I won't name which council. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. I haven't lived in Australia for quite some time, but that would be interesting to compare notes on the ways that the laws and churches interact, because here in the States, churches are exempt from following ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, because some church communities actually petitioned against it. So even now, churches are not legally required to have ramps, accessible bathrooms, curb cuts, or any accessible features, because they said, some churches said it was too costly and a burden to religious exercise to include us. So that reveals so much about how people understand disabled folks and the systemic segregation that there has been of disabled folks. And ADA is just a floor and not a ceiling. And it doesn't really account for many accessibility measures that we know are necessary for folks to participate. So a lot of times people think of ramps as access and they are, but so too are visual descriptions, sensory rooms, captions, ASL interpreters, to name a few. And the more that we can 
destigmatize disability, the more that we can make folks understand that everyone has access needs, regardless of whether they are disabled, the more I think we will, we will hopefully see folks start to acknowledge their access needs and then the hope would be that church communities would also meet them. Amy, um, something that I've grappled with in, in the course of um, my life, I have a, a, an acquired physical disability, uh, has been um, the way in which we understand uh, healing in the context of pain. So something that I really appreciate about your book is the way you, I mean, I'm, so, I'm deeply sorry for the experiences that um, you've had with unsolicited um, offers of prayer for healing. But I wanted to hear, hear your wisdom on how you navigate um, the kind of between the terrain of, yes, the cult of normalcy and the presumptions that are, are freighted in, in, in those presumptions or in, in that assumption of normalcy and the, you know, the good impulse behind wanting to be free of pain. Could you just speak about some of your experience and wisdom in, in that space? What I received so much from that question, aside from you calling me wise, which is nice to, to receive, but what I received so much from that question is this desire for us not to have binaries for everything. And I think that's one of the issues here is that the moment that someone thinks of disability or talks about disability, it becomes conflated with a bunch of other things. And these issues are complex and nuanced and contextual. And too often we're conflating disability and pain as though everyone who's disabled is also in chronic pain and as though everyone who lives with chronic pain is always disabled. And that's just, that just doesn't match up in people's lived experiences. Something I have found great comfort in is that my disability is dynamic. The, you know, how much pain I'm in one day versus the next, what I can physically do one day to the next really fluctuates. Some days I need help getting dressed, other days I, I don't. And that idea of disability being dynamic is for me really connected to the different forms that we experience God in. Disability I think of as a form outside the norm that shifts over time. And when I think of God, I think you know, God is burning bush and rock and cloud above and fire. God is in the still small voice and pregnant belly and the stars above. And that fluctuating way that we get to experience God allows for us to understand a different aspect of God in each of those forms while still retaining the divine. And I like to think of my disabled body fluctuating in that same kind of way. Yeah, thank you. And I think that that in, in links up with um, uh, something that you, you've spoken about and some of our other guests in this series have also pointed out the difference between curing bodies and healing lives and what, what, what the wholeness that is held out in those quote-unquote healing narratives um, what fullness of life looks like is there's such a diversity in, in that. Something that... Um, uh, that I wanted to ask you about was that you 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 point to the 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 scars in the body of the resurrected Christ as um, as you know subverting our assumptions about what the resurrection hope is. Um, I've heard some people say that um, that there's a difference between a wounded body and a disabled body and that that should um, affect the way that we understand resurrection hope. Could you talk to us about how, when you think about the new creation, what are some of the, the guiding um, principles that you think we should hold on to? Because obviously it's such a speculative endeavour, but um, what are some of the, like the handholds that you take when you think about what that hope is? Because I think that hope does shape how we treat people now. Um, so, for example, when you look at Paul and he says that all our bodies will be transformed, what does that mean and how do we 
how do we interpret and apply that um, to our own discipleship and also discipleship in the context of communities? I think Luke 14 is really central for me here in imagining new creation. This is, I mean, generally taken to be eschatology and this great banquet where Jesus describes that poor and disabled people will be invited first and dine at this banquet where there is enough for everyone is really significant. There's no talk of cure. There's no talk of critique. There's no condemnation. There's just community and there's enough. I also really relate to the the scarred, resurrected body of Christ because it does subvert what we expect is beautiful and holy and perfect. And those are all concepts that have been weaponized against me. And so to get to revel in the scars and for those to be the marks of our healing and for that to be the example of the imperishable form that Paul talks about is really significant. Now, this, this image as well in Daniel and Ezekiel of God reigning on a chair with wheels. And that sounds a lot like a wheelchair to me. And it also just gives me an imagination for how new creation is probably nothing like what any of us picture, because how could we fathom the depths of its splendor? But I know that there won't be pain and ableism is painful. I know that there won't be suffering and so many of us have suffered from the ways that churches have treated us. And so I think, I also think there's, God is big enough that it can be different for each person. I don't think that necessarily we all have to have the exact same image, as long as that image is celebrating the way that each of us are created in God's image. Um, Amy, a, a few times um, you've talked about the the nature of ha having people around you and and building community and and that nature of, of the community of the saints. Um, I, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, uh, what that actually looks like uh, within the, the disability context, what it looks like uh, with um, bringing people together uh, in support for each other, and and also then what that looks like in as a model for. Uh, the church community as a whole. I think sometimes when we talk about community, we picture it being this really pristine and perfect thing, or we talk about church churches as though they are families, and we forget most of our families are a mess. And I think that community is messy. It's delightfully messy. It's it is healing, but that takes time and it takes investing in people. And I talk in the book about this idea of crypt time, that time doesn't necessarily happen in a linear incremental fashion for disabled folks. It happens in a way that's messy and complicated and cyclical. And I relate that to this idea of the way that God might experience time. And I think about this notion of moving at the speed of love that some theologians talk about and what that would actually look like in practice if we did that for one another, if we slowed down from our busy schedules and we actually invested in one another, if we recognized that someone is worth changing our language over or changing our our practices over, that we can stretch ourselves enough to include someone in the community who makes us feel slightly uncomfortable or who we're not used to, we can get to know them. And I think in those small acts of faithfulness, we're helping create that co-flourishing, that, that restoration of the goodness between us. We're helping make 
community with one another where we can all thrive. And we're really practicing what we see in the life of Jesus, that the everyday food of bread and wine and nothing fancy is the setting for the sacred being in the mundane. I really like the way that you um, talk about how um, disability presents an opportunity for holy disruption in our communities. And when you sequester that off into segregated services, we're all the poorer for it. Um, something that's come up a little bit in our series has been that question of, you know, how, you know, in trying to accommodate um, people with different needs in our church communities, you know, what the is there ever a role for kind of having different services that are tailored in, in the way that they um, are structured. Do you have do you have thoughts on that in the way in the sense that you know on the one hand yes you want to be um, um, ensuring that people have a place to belong, but then um, <laughs> we're, we're we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity for you know we can't be the full body of Christ unless we're all there. Do you have any thoughts on on that question of this having separate um, tailored services? I generally think separate is not equal. I think we have lots of historical examples to show that. And even when we try to say that there's a service that is just as important, it often isn't. And I also think that body of Christ example that you are referencing is so important. The non-disabled folks cannot say to the disabled folks, I have no need of you. How preposterous would that be? And that's really what we're doing in the body. We aren't allowing for the holy disruption that disability brings. We often have idols of certainty and order and silence. And we are more interested in controlling than in community. Disability is often the source of people's discomfort, not just because of the reasons we've already talked about, but because it makes people recognize that they aren't in control, that by either age or accident, you may join us one day. We're the only marginalized group that you can join at any time. That's how inclusive we are. And I think a lot of what's happening in those interactions where people are uncomfortable with my disabled body, with other disabled folks, is that they don't want to reckon with the fact that they aren't in control, not just of the service, but of their very lives. I just wanted to ask a, a question that I've encountered in, in, in the sense of kind of creation, a creation ethic, in the sense that um, there's an argument that when we, when we look at on the created world, there's a normativity into how the creation is structured. And then that should inform the way that we understand about uh, eschatology and what we're hoping for. So in the context of Alanka in me, so the fact that I have two arms means that normatively the hope I have is that, you know, it, uh, I should be able to, it's intended that in an ideal state, I'll be able to use both arms. Now I can't, I can't use my right arm. So do you think it's always ableist to say that I should hope that in the new creation, that use of both those limbs is something I should hope for um, in the context of when we observe, you know, the created world and what, 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 we, what we perceive there? What are your thoughts on that? I'm going to pull a Jesus and not really answer and tell a story. When I observe the community of creation, I notice how much of it is disabled. So kangaroos can't walk backwards. They can only go forwards. Insert Australian metaphor here. And that in a different framework, in a different context, is a disability. Elephants are born blind. Turtles are deaf. Sharks are nonverbal. Trees are bent and crooked and jagged 
and their very twisted, curvy nature resembles what many of us have been told by the white coats. You're too crooked or you're out of alignment. And I wonder when I look out at the splendor and the radiance of the community of creation, how I can so easily find something praiseworthy in the lion who sleeps most of the day, but is still fierce. And we don't call the lion lazy. We don't say the lion has chronic fatigue syndrome, but lions act more like us spoonies than, than you know, very productive folks. And why can't we do that for our disabled body minds? It was actually in marveling at creation that made me start to think, well, how much the more if I'm created in the image of God? And in that practice of considering the lilies of the field that I started to actually believe maybe that was true. I totally agree um, that there's something um, and you you talk about this in your book and in in some of your other um, uh, statements that you've done on social media. Just this tendency that we have as as uh, people of scripture and as Christians um, to to feel the need to erase or to correct all of the wrongs in creation, um, as though uh, as though there there's something that inherently needs to be straightened. Um, and yet reminded of the scripture that who can straighten what God has made crooked, that there's something um, as the things that you've pointed out um, in that we can see in creation um, that just aren't maybe ideal, maybe, uh, maybe corrected in, into all of its efficiency. Um, and I think we, we rush to, to credit all of this as, as an aspect of the fall rather than understand something providential in, in not all of the pieces fitting together the way that we might expect or that we might um, consider to be beautiful. I've never thought about kangaroos not walking backwards. <laughs> uh, I, I think about uh, Zoolander who can't turn left. Um, <laughs> just uh, the, the, the things that we might consider to be um, something off rather than embracing what uh, is exactly what is and how all of the pieces can fit together. Um, Amy, going back a little bit to what you said earlier, uh, I, 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 I've really appreciated um, you bringing a light to maybe some of the, some of the well-meaning but maybe dumb things that people say uh, to disabled folk. Um, and uh, exceptional people, is there, you know, and, and I think all of us are guilty of it to some extent, but um, that also may may give uh, some some kind of tendency to freeze us from um, from engaging in conversation or, or wanting to say the wrong thing. Are there some helpful helpful ways that you can sort of help us rephrase or approach um, these types of situations a little bit more artfully? Um, maybe some examples or just anything that comes to mind that might help us engage that conversation in a way that's, that's a little bit more, more opening and, and, and positive? Yeah, that's a great question. I really appreciate when people ask if I need help before just assuming that I do. So when I'm using a manual wheelchair, I often just receive people pushing me from one side of the room to the other without asking consent. That's cringe, that's, let's not do that. We can just simply say, do you need help? Can I support you? And then believing us when we say yes or no and then what we need help with. There's a certain type of infantilization there as well that we don't even know what we need. So ask, then believe us. I'm not sure I can really clean up the one that I receive often of I'd rather, I'd kill myself if I had what you have. That's just probably, we should, we should leave that to the inside talk and share that with our therapists and unpack that a little bit more. But just asking, 
and then believing us when when we tell you is probably the the most important thing and then responding with compassion and grace when we ask you not to do a certain behavior i have often asked folks not to say lame i am lame it it means unable to walk it's not great being everyone's go to dig or go to line you know to put something down or to say something's cheesy or undesirable it's even in that taylor swift song now so everyone sings it all the time and most of the time when i say oh hey not cool i'm lame someone responds with defensiveness or shut down oh it doesn't mean that anymore you're being too sensitive don't take it that way not everything's about you instead of just saying oh okay sorry or i won't say that anymore or just not saying anything at all silence is golden and duct tape is silver so you know i think just actually listening when we share our experience with you thank you so much amy and yeah i mean just a side comment on that i mean it's similar when people talk about these kind of midwestern or where else slangs like the you guys you know, people say, well, that doesn't mean that anymore. And in the same way, it's probably rooted in sexism and ableism. The reason that you say you guys and women just have to go, I guess that's me is because there's an expectation that male is default and normal in the same way that at some point, sadly, there was this stigma around lameness. And so it's, it's absurd to me that that argument continues to happen, but anyways, I'm sorry. I have a question. Um, and I think it, we might wrap here. Um, this comes back to some of what maybe Steph was asking in some of our prior conversations. It, so at an earlier point in my life, I have, I do have long-term health condition and it's sort of cyclical. And so I I resonate with what you're saying about seasons and things like that, because there have been seasons that have been quite difficult. And in one of those seasons, I found myself quite often very frustrated by certain Christian messages. And, and I can't remember if I've shared this on the pod before, so I'm sorry, everybody. But one of those was this picture of, um, Paul and the thorn in the flesh and this, my grace is sufficient for you. And then the song, you know, my grace is enough or your grace is enough. And this kind of call. And I found myself bawling in these, in these church services asking sufficient for what, and kind of wondering like, what God are you promising? And so I think this long-winded question, I think it comes back around really to the title of your book. You know, your body is not a prayer request, but what does flourishing and goodness and sufficiency look like? What What is your hope for us? Yeah. Isn't that the worst when someone's singing a song and everyone around you seems to be getting a lot out of it, but you? And you're just internally screaming slash crying slash punching the air. I have been there. I have, I have been there often, particularly with this song about in heaven, there'll be no lame and we'll be healed and whole. And I've been a part of many a church service where that's been sung and everyone's like looked at me and thumbs up and winked. And yeah, I, I, I'm receiving the song. It doesn't mean what you think it means. (laughs) I think my picture of of co-flourishing is that banquet in Luke 14. And is the goodness between us restored? Is a world where we allow for there to be complexity and nuance instead of pushing each other into these binaries that we are willing to be messy with one another instead of needing to control one another and that we are willing to move at the speed of love and stretch ourselves enough to love one another. 
I also think some of that will come by way of celebrating the gifts that disability can teach us, the prophetic witness that it can be in a church community, and by recognizing that there's so much that we don't know about our body minds. And I celebrate the fact that my body is so rare that science is still discovering the secrets that she contains. And the more that we can really believe that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the more that we can make room for that, for that to be true about our disabled bodies. Our disabled bodies are made of the same stuff as stars. And I think the more that we can recognize their shine, the more that we can actually be community together. Amy, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for um, all of the wonderful comments that you've, uh, you've given us and given us so much to think about. Um, as a final question, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to now? Uh, it's been uh, half a year since you left California out here and, and moved out to Georgetown. Um, what are you doing out there? Uh, what are some projects that uh, are keeping you busy and, and uh, anything else that you wanna share about there? Well, I just moved to Washington, DC and <laughs> I am here to help start a disability cultural initiative at Georgetown University. And this is exciting and messy and sacred work in that it's helping give folks an imagination for celebrating disability and for disability to be a culture and an art and community. And it is, there are only a handful of these in the country. And the hope is that there continue to be more. Well, Dr. Kenny, thank you so much for joining us. Just appreciate all of your wisdom and insight and some fabulous one-liners. I think the the line that will stick with me the most, though, is is what you said about the lack of pain in new creation and how ableism is painful. I thought that was a particularly poignant comment, uh, especially upending the way that we think about disability and new creation and what your your book's title is is directly and strongly pointing us again. So I just really appreciate everything you had to share with us. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.